This is Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices episode 219 was recorded on May 14th, 2020. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices is dedicated to healthcare workers all over the world, the true heroes of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, and is brought to you by toptradersonplug.com, a podcast dedicated to quant and rules-based investing, helping investors overcome behavioral biases. Epsilon Theory newsletter author Dr. Ben Hunt joins me as this week's feature interview guest. We'll discuss the long-term knock-on effects of the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis and the post-crisis economy recovery outlook. Then be sure to stay tuned for our post-game segment. Patrick has prepared another of his famous post-game chart books, so we'll be taking a close look at the S&P and just how many stocks are actually responsible for that bear market rally that we're seeing. We'll also look at the dollar index, various currency pairs, and other major global indices. And I'm Patrick Ceresna. Now, Eric, let's dive into that S&P 500. It looked like at the start of the week that we were going to make a gun for 3,000, and then we've given it all back in the last three days, almost breaking to a fresh low for the month of May. But uh, what's your take here as we go into OPEX? Well, I had my second choice, Patrick. Remember, I've been saying 29.30 was the level to short. First time we got there, I intentionally passed on it because I just had too much leverage on in my oil trades. I wanted to stay focused on that. Uh, I've taken a lot of that leverage off because, Frank, we'll get to the oil market in a minute. It's not doing what I had originally thought it was going to do. So I had my chance. I thought long and hard about it as I was staring at that screen at 29.45 or whatever it was trading midday the other day, and I decided to pass on it. Obviously, in hindsight, at least in the short term, that was a mistake. Stan Druckenmiller went uber bearish. Maybe if I had known that, I would have uh, been more tempted to go ahead and jump in on the trade. And then President Trump apparently got all upset. And uh, in an angry tweet storm, he described Stan Druckenmiller as a so-called rich guy. Mr. President, if you're listening, I can assure you Stan Druckenmiller is a bona fide rich guy, and he got to be a bona fide rich guy, so-called or otherwise, by being really, really good at understanding the economy and markets, uh, probably better than you do, sir. So uh, I, I don't know about the so-called rich guy thing. I would love to get Stan on the program. He's Patrick, he's been at the top of our wish list ever since we started doing Macro Voices four years ago. Uh, I would absolutely love to, to get him on the program because my question for him would be, okay, the central banks have been so successful for the last decade at propping up asset markets. And that's the primary reason that I decided to pass on this is I just don't know if central bank intervention is going to somehow prop the asset markets, including the stock market, up higher once again. It was very curious to me, Patrick, Stan Druckenmiller in his presentation to the New York Economic Club, which was done as a webinar because, of course, they're not meeting live in the coronavirus crisis in New York City. Uh, he told the New York Economic Club audience that he thinks this might be a, the event that finally kind of tips us out of this credit bubble that's been created by central bank largesse. 
And so maybe the jig is finally up, so to speak. Uh, as far as I know, and I didn't attend that webinar myself, he never really elaborated and nobody asked him to on why he thinks the jig might be up now and why central banks wouldn't be able to continue to just prop up asset markets. If things really did get to what Mr. Druckenmiller seems to be implying, that uh, the jig is up and markets are going to stop assuming that central banks can achieve anything with printed money, uh, that would be really, really big. We could be looking at the beginning of an outright depression. Listeners, if anyone has Stan Druckenmiller's ear, we would love to get him on the program for a feature interview. He's been top of our list for a long time. He's a very hard guy to get a hold of. If anyone has his ear, please tell him Macro Voices is uh, worth his time and that we would love to have him on to really dive into those views in more detail. Going back to the S&P, Patrick, uh, we'll get into this more in the postgame segment when we look at some charts. But uh, I still see it, as I did before, as bear market rally that appears to have peaked out at the 61.8 retrace in any normal market, any market other than one which is propped up by central bank largesse. Uh, I would be extremely high conviction, mega short here, because I think we ought to be headed for new lows below 2000 on the S&P. Uh, on the other hand, what we've seen in the last 10 years is the central banks always seem to just come to the rescue and overcome normal economic gravity. So it remains to be seen what comes next. All right, well, let's move on to the US dollar index because uh, every dip seems to be bought. The price action looks like it's going higher, but we don't have a breakout. Like it uh, hasn't really taken off. What's your take? Are we finally going to see a move in the dollar? Well, as I read the chart, we're still consolidating here between 99 and 101. We got to get a break out of that range before we have any signal. And if it is to the upside, as I expect it will be, the next thing to watch is 104. I did see someone posted a chart on Twitter saying supposedly today was the breakout on the dollar index. And they're drawing a symmetrical triangle that goes through that 104 high to an earlier, you know, much earlier, higher high. And supposedly the way that they've drawn the line that's a symmetrical triangle and we broke out of it today. I don't see where that line is going or what the previous high is that it's pointing to. So I'm not really sure about that chart. But at least somebody on Twitter thinks that we're getting a breakout right now to the upside on the dollar. I'll believe that when I see first a daily close over 101, then a daily close over 104. I still do think that's where we're headed, but we need to see those technical signals in order to really reinforce that fundamental view. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to crude oil because uh, it's been slowly crawling higher for the last couple of weeks. Like, are we going to have a retest that low? What's your thinking on how this is playing out? Well, I'm going to be the first to admit, Patrick, that I've been utterly baffled by a lot of what's going on here. The market is sending us a very clear signal in the form of prices primarily, not just the flat price of crude oil, but on crude oil time spreads. And that message is, hey, baby, the storage crisis is over. Bloomberg even had an article claiming that some of the uh, shutdown oil wells in the Permian Basin are being restarted. Now, uh, I talked to Anas Alhaji. He thinks that the Bloomberg reporter is confused and they're actually uh, something else is being restarted, not oil wells. In any case, it is easy to say, OK, maybe the reason that the inventory builds are petering out and, and we're starting to see drawdowns, as I had originally predicted, that's what would happen when we got to the point where the tanks were all full. The thing is, if we were at the point where the tanks were completely full and there's no storage available, the time spreads would not be rallying the way that they have been. 
We've seen an amazing move in the June-July time spread back up to, as we're speaking right now, 36 cents of contango. Minus 36 is the print. That's a perfectly normal closing print on OPEX day in a normal market when you don't have a coronavirus crisis, when there's modest demand for storage. Uh, Definitely 36 cents of contango means there's some demand for storage. It's not like we're running out of oil and the tanks are going dry. You'd have backwardation in that case. But 36 cents of contango is a normal market kind of condition. It's not what I would have expected at all. It did start to kind of crash this morning, but it fully recovered to a new higher high. And today was options expiration day. So, you know, what we're getting in terms of price signals is really telling us everything's fine. Nothing's wrong. The whole problem that we had with storage is all behind us. The bottom's in. Get ready for the recovery to begin from here. The thing is, it ain't over until the fat lady sings. And the way that the futures market works after options expiration day into contract expiry, which really it's Monday afternoon at 2.30 and then finally Tuesday at 2.30. But Monday is probably the point where you know for sure what's going to happen. If there's going to be a crash in the June price and a blowout of that June-July spread into massive contango, which would be an indication of an imbalance where you have too many paper longs that are trying to roll forward and the shorts in the market are physical shorts who intend to deliver into that contract, it puts a squeeze on the longs and the price utterly collapses like it did last month. If that's going to happen, the fact it didn't happen yet isn't really surprising. You'd expect it to happen after options expiration because options expiration is also when position limits go into effect. So the open interest going into tomorrow's trading day will be much, much smaller than it was today. And now's where that imbalance starts to get worked out. The thing is, Patrick, so far, all indications have been everything's fine. And these time spreads can be arbitraged. You can get cheap storage in Cushing by shorting the June contract, delivering oil into it, and buying it back six months later. And you get six months of storage for about four and a half dollars. It was more than that for one month's storage a month ago. How did this get all better? Do we really believe it's all better? If it was just the flat price, I'd say, okay, this is a sentiment-driven rally. A whole bunch of people are putting too much faith in this rhetoric around reopening the economy and everything's going to be better, and probably prices are headed back down. The thing is, the time spreads can be arbitraged. That's not just sentiment. It means that that storage is available and that those spreads are not being arbitraged. So it's a real mystery to me. I'm going to be very curious to see how this works out over the next few days. Inventory, crude oil drawing down 0.7 million barrels nationally. Now, that's a little bit misleading because there was a build of 1.9 million barrels on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So net of the SPR, it was a 1.2 million barrel build. A drawdown, though, in Cushing, Oklahoma, of 3 million barrels, which is pretty significant. Gasoline drawing down 3.5 million barrels. Distillates building 3.5 million barrels. 
We also saw a low on the year in refinery runs. So refineries are not throttling back up, even though it seems like everybody's acting like everything's getting better. Refineries haven't got the memo yet from the looks of things. U.S. production, 11.6 million barrels. That's down 300,000 barrels from last week. Again, these EIA numbers are estimates. I suspect that the real production number is even lower than that, as we're hearing a lot of reports of very aggressive shut-ins. There's a lot of people who are saying, well, but the thing is, you know, you're, you're talking about these time spreads, but there's no sign of these tanker deals slowing down. We're seeing more and more oil going into floating storage. I think that's a little bit of an optical illusion, Patrick. And the reason is the deals that were made last month when people were buying the May contract to take delivery and put on a tanker and selling it back into the market a year later or something, they're taking delivery of that oil this month and putting it on the tanker. So the oil you see going into floating storage, I think, is based on deals that were made last month. The source of funding that pays for and makes those tanker trades economic is the contango in the futures term structure. Is that contango has come out of the market. The source of funding has come out of the market. I can't imagine very many new tanker deals that are being signed or, or put into place now. The oil that's going on to tankers now, I think, is oil that was in deals that were made a month ago. Tying this all together, it's possible that this is all a great big sediment-driven rally where everybody is just excited about reopening the economy and the time spreads are up simply because of an epically crowded trade going wrong and a huge short squeeze. That's a plausible explanation. But the fact remains, those spreads can be arbitraged for storage. Well, okay, how would we know if they are being arbitraged? In other words, people, if they wanted to arbitrage that very small time spread, they could sell the June contract and buy the December contract. And for that difference of about $4.5, they would get storage of oil for that price for six months. Well, if people are doing that, it means that they are selling the June contract with the intention of standing for delivery. We won't find that out until sometime between tomorrow and Monday when the market has to resolve the remaining open interest and get down to who's actually physically standing for delivery. So if people are arbitraging that spread, as would seem to be a ripe opportunity, we'll find out by Monday. If we get through Monday and there hasn't been any crash in the front month price, I think the only plausible conclusion at that point is there really has been just an extraordinary recovery where the price function forced so much shut-in of production that suddenly we don't have a storage crisis anymore. Storage is able to keep up with the amount of production that's flowing into it. So just very difficult for me to believe that's actually happening, but that's the signal that the market is giving us. All right, well, let's move on to gold because uh, gold is up about $22 today, edging towards $17.50. I don't know whether it's officially a, a breakout. We'll talk about that chart in the post game. but what's your uh, take right now on bullion? Is it going higher? I keep wishing for weakness so I can buy some gold on the cheap, and I keep getting disappointed. You know, the long-term bullish argument couldn't be stronger. The thing to remember is everyone knows that. A lot of people are already all in. There really are all of the ingredients there for a big technical correction. 
doesn't change my bullish view. And I'm hoping for a big technical correction because I want to buy more gold. But, you know, I interviewed Brent Johnson on All Stars this week. Brent's one of the few people who's been even more adamant than I am in saying, hey, folks, even though the fundamentals couldn't be better, you know, everybody's all in. There's room for a technical correction here. Brent was really outspoken in saying, you know, we're really very likely to get back to a test of 1350. Uh, this was the first time I interviewed Brent, and he's kind of dropped that. And he's saying, you know, uh, I thought that was going to be the way it was going to play out, but it sure doesn't look that way. So maybe we're just going to power higher from here. The big test, of course, will be breaking above the previous high. I think it was 1770-something. If we can break to a new cycle high for this year, then that certainly says we're on the way toward the previous all-time high of, I think it was 1922, set back in 2011. All right, well, let's move on to the 10-year Treasury yield, which is uh, trading around spot 6.2 right now. But it doesn't matter whether we go 2-year, 5-year, 30-year. They're all just crawling lower. They don't seem to have any jump in the yields that seems to stick. And it looks like they want to break lower. Are we, are we still going to get this kind of deflationary impulse that pushes the yields lower from here? I think so. You know, as I surmise all of the feedback that we're getting from all of our feature interview guests, and I think you'll hear some more of this from Dr. Ben Hunt this week, you know, a lot of people think that inflation is on the horizon, but nobody thinks it's now. We've still got deflation that really calls for still lower bond yields. Probably the, the final bottom is not in yet. Maybe the final bottom is negative on the 10-year. I don't know. We'll have to see. I'm going to continue asking our guests, but the thing I'm really starting to think about is charting the course for an eventual secular change from deflation to either inflation or stagflation. The last time that happened in the markets was in the 1960s. There's nobody left alive who was, you know, professionally working in the industry at that time who hasn't retired or, or passed on. So we've got a whole industry that is not ready for this change. I think it's coming in the next five years. Now, is it coming in the next two years or is it coming in six or seven years? I really don't know. I'm going to keep asking all the experts. This week's feature interview guest is Epsilon Theory newsletter author, Dr. Ben Hunt. Now, why did we ask uh, Dr. Ben Hunt back on the show this week? Patrick, as this coronavirus crisis unfolded, there was a small group of people on financial Twitter who really saw it early and were very outspoken about it. And we've had Jim Bianco on the program before talking about this. He was one of the earliest and most visionary people to really see how this played out. Ben has been the big picture guy who's really thinking not so much about, you know, what's the difference between our not and, you know, the, the various technical details of understanding virology. He's more thinking about the societal impacts and how it's going to affect generational cycles and, you know, big picture kind of stuff. So I wanted to get an update from Ben now that we're at least past the worst first wave of this crisis and see where he thinks we're headed. So that was the motivation for getting him back. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. In recent weeks, we've been reminded of the fragility of world financial markets and how quickly sentiment can shift from risk on to risk off. Once again, the mantra of buy the dip and the determination of central banks will be put to the test. But as Chris Cole recently told us, the best approach to investing in the long run is very different from what's worked best in recent decades. To help Macro Voices listeners navigate an uncertain future, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, 
host of the Top Traders Unplugged podcast, has created a guide to the best investment books of all time. You can get a free copy at toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro guide. And be sure to listen to my full-length interview with Niels Kastrup-Larsen on trend following. The download link is in your research roundup email. Check out toptradersunplugged.com today. You'll be glad you did. Eric's interview with Dr. Ben Hunt is coming up as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. And now with this week's special guest, here's hedge fund manager, Eric Townsend. Joining me now is Dr. Ben Hunt, founder of Second Foundation Partners, and perhaps most famously, the author of the extremely popular Epsilon Theory newsletter. Ben, it's great to have you back on Macro Voices. It's so good because, you know, we've done a lot of coverage of the COVID-19 crisis with a lot of really smart people. We had Dr. Chris Martinson on. And, you know, we're diving into the nitty gritty of, okay, what's our naught and what's the transmissibility going to tell us about, you know, the virus mutation and, and how do we, what's the difference between antibody testing and contact testing? We've covered all that. Something I've noticed from day one of this crisis is you've always been the guy who's thinking five steps ahead, not so much to what's on the table right now in front of us, but what are the long-term implications on society going to be as we go through, as the entire world goes through something that it hasn't gone through in more than 100 years? Uh, I just think of you as the, the big picture guy who's got a better perspective on the coronavirus crisis, what it means economically, but also what it means for society. Ben, we spoke off the air about three narratives that you talk about as they pertain to this crisis. Let's start with those. What's the first narrative? Thanks for having me, Eric. And, and I also want to thank you for your coverage of this. So what I thought might be helpful is for to describe what I think are the, the three primary politicized narratives uh, that have been built around COVID-19. Each of these narratives at its core is based on a model. It's based on a top-down application of an abstraction. It starts with a model, and only at the end does it try to make some sort of imperfect fit to what individuals can and should do. And I think it's so important to understand that that's how I think we can all recognize a political narrative, a narrative that's an effort to maintain control or power, a narrative that is there for institutional interest rather than for the interest of you and me and the common good. So if 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 that sounds right to you let me let me let me start with that the three big political narratives that I think have really taken over our public discourse around this virus and then I think I can suggest some some alternative ways of 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 thinking about this number 1 I I I call what about the flu right so this is this is a narrative that 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 frankly has died down a bit uh, it's the narrative that dominated the early days of of discussion about you know about coronavirus i know you're well familiar with this eric because you and i and everyone who was sounding the alarm about this early 
we certainly heard this from from a lot of different sources that it's just like the flu. The flu is worse. You know, what's the big deal? The political goal of this narrative, and it's absolutely a political narrative, is to minimize the COVID-19 threat. It it has at its heart a a nugget of truth. The seasonal flu is, in fact, a nasty and, and, and rather mitigatable disease. But the big lie of this narrative is that COVID-19 and the, the, the virus that causes it, the biology of the virus, as you and Chris and so many others have, have done such a good job in describing, the, the political purpose is to minimize it, to say this isn't a big deal. Certainly, we can see lots of examples of this narrative being promoted from the political right. I mean, we all have seen the clips of Rush Limbaugh saying, oh, it's just the flu. You know, we've all got our, our pictures of, of Donald Trump standing up at the podium and, and, and saying similar things. But I think what's very important is to, to, to recognize that in the, in the early days of a, a policy response to this, and I can give you lots of examples of this too, you know, you'd go on to CNN and you'd see Dr. Gupta, he'd be talking about, well, we need to, you know, compare this to the flu, that it's not a big deal. At the time, this was in reaction, and again, this is how these 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 narratives become politicized. This was in reaction to Trump's decision at the end of January to stop flights coming in from China, or to, to stop some flights, let, let's say that, right? And so at the time, when you looked at a lot of the media coverage from, let's call it, institutions that were politically opposed to the White House— they adopted this narrative that, oh, it's just like, it's it's no worse than the flu, just as much as the political right adopted this narrative in the weeks ahead. The reason I say that this is a model-driven narrative, and, and I think there's, there's you know, this crazy lack of, of knowledge about this out in, out in the public, is that all these numbers that you hear about how many people every year die from the flu these are not actual counts. You know, it's not like we are counting the people who die of the flu in hospitals. These are models. <laughs> these are these are these are models that the CDC and, and and others create to again create this picture, this abstraction of how dangerous the seasonal flu is. The only flu deaths we actually count in this country are pediatric influenza deaths. We do actually count when children die of flu. But the, the, the big numbers that you hear talking about, oh, the flu killed, you know, X tens of thousands of people last year, these are numbers that are created from a model. They incorporate essentially every pneumonia death, uh, so many respiratory deaths, and they are created and then they're presented to us with the purpose of encouraging seasonal flu vaccines. Right? And it kind of boggles my mind because so many of the people who make this argument, oh, it's no worse than the flu, and then they trot out these numbers. These are people who think they are anti-modeling. These are people who think that they are, you know, raising the alarm about how we're taking on these these anti-COVID nineteen policies on the basis of some model when. What they're talking about, the narrative they're presenting to minimize the COVID-19 threat, 
it's inherited. It's a, it's a model too. It's based on a model as well. So, you know, that's, that's kind of my first example of these model driven political narratives used by both the left and the right, depending on what's politically advantageous to them. And it's, it's, it's just, you know, my first example of how this is being politicized and, and, and really used uh, uh, against us. The second example I'll, I'll give is this example of uh, the, the, the narrative, of, oh, herd immunity, right? That the, that the policy we should take on is one in which we just get it over with, <laughs> basically. That, that the political goal here is one of preserving the economic status quo. And and again, there's a nugget of truth here, just as there was a nugget of truth in the the political narrative of, oh, it's just the flu. The the nugget of truth here is that massive unemployment as a as a policy reaction to this virus, it is devastating. Massive unemployment is absolutely devastating. But the big lie here, the big lie here that I see in the in the policy narratives that come out of the idea of, of seeking herd immunity is that while we are developing herd immunity, that we can protect the olds and the six, right? That, that, Oh, we'll do, we'll do fine in, 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 in protecting the people who have some condition that makes them more susceptible uh, to, to dying from, from, from this virus, whether that pre-existing condition is age or that pre-existing condition is something like diabetes or respiratory disease or anything like that. That's nonsense, right? And what we see, what we are experiencing is that that, that is the big lie that uh, while we're developing this, we can, we can protect these people. The model that this is based on you know the model that this this politicized narrative is based on with a goal again of of, of preserving the economic status quo is you know in the, in the same way that it's just the flu had these laughably inaccurate models of seasonal flu deaths in the United States so here do we have these laughably inaccurate models of covid-19 infection spread and severity you know totally distanced from the bio, again the biology of this virus that Chris and others have done such a good job of talking about it's it's a made up top down model to convince us that it's perfectly fine to just go about your business right that oh yeah maybe you want to do a little social distancing but you know it's it's what we really have to do is we have to preserve the the economy and some sacrifice some some large sacrifice in lives is you know perfectly fine to do that right? again it's it's very easy i think to find examples of this narrative from the political right but i <laughs> i think it's important to recognize that the kind of national example of this sweden you know this argument is coming from the political left more appropriately, I believe, is that this argument often comes from political incumbents. Because while that nugget of truth is absolutely right, massive unemployment is devastating to families and individuals. The political truth is that massive unemployment is particularly devastating to political incumbents who have elections coming up. 
And, and, and I think so much of, of what's driving this narrative of herd immunity, open back up, it's really not so bad, you'll probably be fine, is being driven by these political necessities and imperatives. And that's also true for the third narrative, the third politicized narrative that I, that, that I think is uh, so prevalent here today, and that's flatten the curve, right? Whereas it's just the flu and herd immunity, I, I think, are have some sort of goal either of, of COVID-19 threat minimization in the case of, of um, it's just the flu, or have as their political goal the maintenance of, of, of economic status quo. I think the political goal of much of the flatten the curve narrative is that of COVID-19 threat maximization. And again, there's a nugget of truth here. These lockdowns that come from flatten the curve are absolutely useful in preventing a surge in cases which can overwhelm the healthcare system. At the same time, though, there's also a big lie here. And the big lie, I believe, of flatten the curve is that we can get r naught down to zero. Right, that 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 it's it's somehow taken on a larger purpose, and the somehow is the politicization of this. That rather than simply doing its its supposed goal at the outset, which was to flatten the curve, the curve being healthcare utilization, the curve being avoiding an overwhelming of the healthcare system, as you saw in Wuhan in China, as you saw in many cases in Italy. Uh, as you certainly saw in New York City, you know, now it's gone beyond that. It's like, well, no, 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 just hang on. We can we can knock out the disease entirely, not just flatten the curve, but try to eliminate the curve. And the the political, I think, drive behind that is that when we've got everyone freaked out about staying alive, man, there's no end to the the, the crazy authoritarian stuff we can get away with. Right, so if the policy prescription of herd immunity is at its core, oh hey, you'll you'll probably be okay. I mean, probably. I, I think the policy prescription of flatten the curve in its politicized form has become, hey, you know what? You'll find these ankle monitors to be surprisingly light and comfortable to wear. It it's it's just phenomenal to me how far away we've gotten in all three of these politicized narratives, but particularly these last two I mentioned, either the open up, we're going to go for herd immunity narrative, or the stay locked down, we've got to flatten the curve narrative. It's phenomenal to me in both of these how far away we've gotten from the original intent and focus, which was one that was focused on the biology of this disease and instead has become a, again, a politicized narrative to try to achieve, frankly, ends and goals which are not to our advantage as citizens, but are definitely to the advantage of the, the institutions and the political structures which are now promoting them. 
Ben, let's talk about what has happened in terms of the monetary and fiscal policy response. Because, you know, as you go through these different narratives, look, I don't claim to be so smart as to know which one of those narratives is more prudent than the other ones. There's obviously trade-offs between flattening the curve and is there some benefit from herd immunity and so forth. It's a, it's a hard puzzle. But what I see here is with essentially zero public debate or discourse, we somehow just one day flipped a switch and said, well, because all of this is going on, first of all, if there's anybody that we can identify, and it was not their fault that the virus happened, in other words, everybody, right? Because it's, it's not anybody's fault. It, it, you know, if it's not airlines' fault that this happened, well, then we ought to take public money, your money and my money, and give it to airlines to bail them out because, hey, it's not their fault. Cruise ships, it's not their fault. The private jet industry, it's not their fault that this happened. Let's give them some money. We basically flipped a switch and went to unlimited monetary policy, you know, central bank balance sheet expansion that makes QE1, 2, and 3 look like a backyard weenie roast compared to what we've now got cooking. It's basically providing the central bank funded source to supply the the necessary money to fuel the next step, which is, hey, every week or so, let's just pass a couple trillion with a T dollars of fiscal stimulus that we haven't really even talked about. Not only has there been no public discourse, but even the senators that are voting for this stuff aren't even sure what's in the bill because they haven't had time to read it. And we're passing $2 trillion a week for a while there in fiscal stimulus. And, you know, I'm very much of the opinion that the United States needs and would benefit from the right, well-thought-out infrastructure program. But but wait a minute. I haven't heard a single bit of discussion about what the trade-offs are and what kind of infrastructure we should be investing in and what the plan is for this infrastructure bill. It's just a couple trillion for that. Let's do it. Why not? And what, what are we going to do for our next two trillion next week? Where does this take us in terms of, I mean, and I'm so tempted to say, well, it has to be inflationary. You know, I've said quite a few times in the last 10 years, this has to be inflationary, and it it didn't quite break us out of deflation. Is this finally the the big thing that, that brings about a secular shift from deflation to inflation? If so, how long does it take for that to play out? And, and if not, what else does this mean? Because it seems like we're in completely uncharted territory with just insane amounts of spending and a new attitude, which is as long as it's not your personal fault that the, that the virus happened, let's give you lots and lots of taxpayer money as long as you're somebody who knows somebody. Um, where's this all taking us? Well, I'll, I'll end up with the, the inflation versus deflation question, Eric, because I, I think you're right that, that as an investor, the only question you must get roughly right to preserve your wealth, to build your wealth, to protect your family is the inflation question. You don't have to get it exactly right. You don't have to get the timing perfect, but it's the one question that you must get roughly correct in order to build and protect your family's wealth. So I I am going to end up with that because I I think it's the most important question you can ask as an investor. But to your your, your main point here, the way you introduced this, look, it's it's, it's what I like to call the through no fault of their own 
exclusion to to capitalism, which I I, I didn't know existed, but I'm 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 thrilled to learn uh, this <laughs> that we that we have this this uh, safe harbor now for through no fault of your own uh, to protect your your equity interest in in anything in the in, in the world. This is exactly what I mean, Eric, when I say that these narratives, particularly the herd immunity narrative of of now, you know, protecting the economic status quo, protecting wealth, and the flatten the curve narrative, you know, both of these really do have nuggets of important truth. Both of these have started, I believe, from a good place. Both of these have now been co-opted, as narratives almost always are, by political institutions. Again, this isn't just something on the left or the right. This is a power thing to use these narratives to try to, well, accomplish, my view, really sad and terrible things. Right. And, and, and one of those sad and terrible things is exactly what you're describing here, where the lion's share, if not the vast majority of the fiscal and monetary support, is not going to that single mom who's now been out of a job and has got to wrestle with, oh my God, do I go back to work and maybe infect my family when I've got no nothing to support me here? I've got no backdrop here, right? The, the amount of, of support that's going to, to that American citizen versus the amount of support that's going to not just the 1%, the one-tenth of 1% to the corporations and the larger, the better, right? The amount of support that's going to them is just dwarfed, dwarfed the amount of support to the citizens that are truly bearing the brunt of this virus. And that that comes through in so many different ways, right? It, it comes through and you know, we can talk about your infringements on, on liberty, which are real and, and which really we have to be aware of. They come in the form of our political leaders like, you know, Chris Christie saying, oh, it's our, it, it's your responsibility, you know, to go back to work and be that, you know, that, that clerk at the counter, right? And, you know, sacrifices have got to be made. It's just like World War II. We got to sacrifice. I mean, it just makes me so angry, Eric. I, I mean, a guy like Chris Christie, who's frankly, whose idea of sacrifice is a regular order of fries, Right. You know, for him to lecture us about national sacrifice, it, it just it, it really makes me physically ill. And this is, as you say, this is the 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 bailout nation that we experienced in 2008 and 2009 now on steroids. You know, it's just like you said. And it's. It's profoundly exacerbating the wealth and income inequalities in this country. It is once again revealing these naked sinews of power. It's once again ripping off the pleasant skin that we have in terms of democracy and capitalism to reveal, again, not a left versus right thing, but a state 
and ultra rich against everyone else. And, and I don't know any better way to say it. I don't know anything better to do than to keep calling it out. But I do think that the time is ripe for all of us to call it out, to recognize what's happening, and return to grassroots civic political action, not to join, you know, the left or the right and, you know, march and in some constructed fake competition here, but to actually work for our communities from that bottom-up level in a way that recognizes both the biology of this virus, which is incredibly challenging, and recognizes the rights and responsibilities that we have to each other as citizens. I, I think that's really the way forward. Ben, I want to pick up on that point that you just made, because instead of just talking on podcasts about how all of this spending is immoral and, and wrong and so forth, you've chosen to actually make a difference by starting an organization, Frontline Heroes, which is actually making a difference in this crisis. I really want to get to that, but I know my listeners will revolt if I don't let you first answer the question about inflation versus deflation <laughs> and what it means for their investments. So let's hit that first and we'll come back to Frontline Heroes. You got it, Eric. And again, I, I think it's such an important question you raise because this, again, is the one question that all investors have to get roughly right. Are we in an inflationary environment or are we in a deflationary environment? And let me say just as clearly as I can, right now, today, we are in a massive deflationary environment. There, there are no two ways about it. No two ways about it. What we are experiencing in terms of job losses, in terms of human life losses, in terms of the, the very real restrictions, not just restrictions, but behavioral changes that we have in terms of international trade, in terms of travel, in terms of, of, of everything that makes the modern economy go, we are in a profoundly deflationary environment. So that's where we are now. And I've, you know, we've written about this a, a lot. It, it's, it's like I want to call there the, you know, we talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Well, I think we can talk about the four horsemen of the investment apocalypse also. And the first three of those horsemen, and here we're actually dealing with a real pestilence, right? A real plague. The first three of these are deflationary, and these are the challenges that we've been dealing with for decades now. These are the challenges that our monetary policy and our fiscal policy were designed to address coming out of the great financial crisis, which was a deflationary crisis. These are the same tools, and they're going to do more of that with this deflationary crisis around COVID-19. My strong view, though, is that ultimately we get to the fourth horseman. And the fourth of horseman of the apocalypse was death. The fourth horseman of the investment apocalypse is inflation. That fourth horseman will ride into town. And it's going to ride into town because as a result of this response to COVID-19, we finally broken down but, you know, the last seals here, 
right? We have finally gone forward with what is really an effective merger of the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury. We have the Fed and the Treasury acting in tandem today to create truly a Bank of the United States, you know, going back to Hamiltonian days and, and you know, Jacksonian days. The modern Bank of the United States is one in which the Fed issues the money, prints the money, and buys things, including the securities, the debt securities that the U.S. Treasury puts out. We've crossed the Rubicon here. We've broken the seals. I'm trying to think of other analogies I can use. But what we have today in many of the, I'll call it the, the alphabet soup of programs that have been launched, are systems where the Federal Reserve is buying the assets. The U.S. Treasury is taking the equity tranche, the first loss tranche, of many of these assets that the Fed is, 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 is purchasing. And in addition, the Treasury is, is also issuing many of these securities that the Federal Reserve is now purchasing. It's, it's a merger of the two institutions that has been at the heart of what proponents of modern monetary theory have called for for years. Right. That was always kind of one of the sticking points of modern monetary theory, is that they saw the government as this unitary actor, as this bank, right, that would that would invest in the real in the real world, uh, that would spend money in the real world, but it, it it didn't match the actual institutional setup that we have in this country and most countries, where you have separate institutions that are doing fiscal policy, that's the U.S. Treasury, versus monetary policy, the Federal Reserve. And the the big news, what ushers in this fourth horseman of the investment apocalypse, what ushers in inflation is the merger of monetary and fiscal policy, as we are absolutely seeing with the response to COVID-19. Now, where I believe the, uh, I'll call the, the rubber meets the road here, will happen after the November election. And the instrument of this it's going to be a $2 trillion spending plan where you know, it'll be called infrastructure bonds or make America great bonds if it's Trump who gets reelected. It'll be called green bonds or, I don't know, no malarkey bonds for all I know if, 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 it's, if it's Biden who's, who's elected in November. But either way, it's going to be about $2 trillion. And it's going to be at least half monetized, at least half bought directly by the Federal Reserve. And the reason this is different from the financial asset inflation that we've seen over the last 11 years, the reason why I I really believe this leads to inflation in the real economy, is that with this marriage of fiscal and monetary policy, where the Fed is directly monetizing spending from the U.S. government, where the Federal Reserve is now taking credit risk 
<laughs> yeah, which is crazy, right? So the the Federal Reserve is. Ben, made, let me interrupt yeah. you for just a second because sure. I want to I want to ask you to clarify something. When you say the Fed will be directly monetizing half of that two trillion dollars, do you really mean that they will directly monetize, which would require either a, a change to the Federal Reserve Act or or, or a even more liberal attitude toward ignoring what it says? Or do you mean they'll continue to play this shell game where, in theory, supposedly it's the, the debt is all sold to the public and, you know, in reality, investment banks are buying it with the intention of turning around and selling it back to the Fed a week later? Do you think that shell game continues or do you really mean what you said in the literal sense of the rules change and the Fed is directly monetizing that government spending? I think that, that it's the latter. I think that this will be the Rubicon to you know, just do away with the fig leaf and directly purchase it uh, in the same way that you're seeing the Fed, I'll say, directly now purchasing issuance by states and, and, and localities. And do you think that occurs with a rewrite of the Federal Reserve Act, or do you think it occurs just because they get away with breaking their own rules? I think it's the latter. I think you've probably had Jim Bianco on talking about this as well. And there are a number of people have talked about how there is an exigency clause in the, the Federal Reserve Act that the, the, the Fed has used in so many, again, of these alphabet soups of new programs that they've, they've announced that are clearly in violation right, of the, of the Federal Reserve Act. I think they'll just continue to, to expand that. That exigency, that use of the exigency clause, and and the reason I say that is that who's going to take them to court, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Who has standing to say, oh, oh no, that's that that's a violation of the Federal Reserve Act? It, it it's a legit question, right? Because I, I've talked to people, and there there are lots of them who are saying, look, this is this is nuts, and it really is these new alphabet soup programs that are breaking down even further the. The barriers we've had between fiscal policy and, and monetary policy. So I I think we see more rather than less of this. I think that if by some miracle there's some way that someone has standing to you know take this to court, and by again by another miracle there's there's some you know court somewhere that says oh yeah this is problematic for the Federal Reserve Act then I think they amend it, right? But there is no one, this is what I mean, it's not a left versus right thing. There is no political party, there is no governmental institution that wants to put the brakes on what the Fed is doing. No one, none. So my strong view is if there is no institution with an interest in stopping this process, it ain't going to stop. It ain't going to stop. So you know that's that's what comes out of this. I think it's a it's a twenty twenty one phenomenon where we have the really the direct monetization of of federal spending, where we have the direct use of the treasury to take credit loss positions, first credit loss positions, still leaving the Fed on the hook for credit losses. That, to me, is the most incredible thing about these programs for buying corporate debt. Right? You, you are explicitly having the, the, the Fed, the Fed now take on credit risk, where they are acting as a commercial bank, truly the too-big-to-fail commercial bank. It's, it's a watershed event. 
it's already happened and and it's not going to stop eric it's not going to stop ben at some point in this crisis i know things kind of uh something snapped for you because we got to the point where the government's basically not doing anything terribly productive i, I know at one point i was actually following a story where there were paramedics in new york city dumpster diving behind the hospital looking for n95 masks because nobody had their act together they weren't able to order the right ones at some point something snapped for you and you just heard about this stuff and you said I'm going to take personal action to get N95 masks into the hands of the people in the front line who need them. Tell us what is Frontline Heroes, but more importantly, how did it come about and, and what was your experience? I mean, you're you're a very comfortable finance guy with a great career, great reputation. I'm sure you never imagined yourself starting a charity before this all happened. Something happened for you and all of a sudden everything changed. Tell us what that was like. You know what what clicked for me, Eric, is that you know, I've been railing about our, our trickle-down economy for so long, right, where, where the, the policy, fiscal policy, monetary policy particularly, it's really designed to support what I like to call the, the, the naked sinews of power. And it really comes to a, to a head in a crisis where you reveal that this pleasant skin of democracy and capitalism that that we all believe in and and want so desperately for ourselves and our children it's it's just a skin right and and then underneath it are all these policies which are designed to 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 prop up and bail out and support the status quo wealth and and economy of the of the very wealthy and the very politically connected and what really clicked for me in this this COVID nineteen crisis was, it's the same thing with medical supplies. It's trickle down. It's trickle down, Eric. Where the very well connected, the very politically connected, the crony capitalism that we see in in our economy, it's the same thing in our healthcare, where. You know, supposedly we have these millions of N95 masks that are stockpiled and, and available, and yet, like you, there are there are horror stories of doctors and nurses and EMTs and, and firemen and policemen and first responders who are forced to put not only their own lives. But when you talk to the to, to these these heroes, right? What they're really concerned about is bringing this risk home to their families, and that's what they are forced to do in this trickle down system we have, not just for wealth, but for medical supplies, for protecting. Again, we call them frontline heroes: the the doctors, the nurses, the EMTs, the firemen who are who are responding, who are fighting this war for us. So that that's what clicked, you know, what snapped in me, Eric, was was to to find a way not to compete with the federal government and the FEMA and the state management authorities, right? Not to try to buy a million N95 masks and drive up the price and, you know, do all that, which is a real problem. But I'll be damned if I was going to wait for FEMA and these state emergency authorities to find the time to trickle down masks to the to the people who who need them so desperately. So that was that that was the 
I'll say the inspiration for for our effort. And I'm gonna I'm gonna plug it right now, right? It, it's frontlineheroesusa.org, all one word. Frontlineheroesusa.org. And the the way it came about was, you know, this is the, the the crazy world we live in, right, Eric? Where where social media is both a a horrible thing in so many ways, but it's it's also wonderful at connecting so many people. I, I got a Twitter DM from an Epsilon Theory reader who works for Intel. And he said, you know, look, we've got we've got a ton of employees, Intel does, over in China. And you know, I reached out to a couple of my friends over there. You know, they can they can buy these these N95 equivalent masks. They're 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 pretty they're plentiful over there in China. You know they're not that expensive, and so I've 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 had a couple of buddies to go online, order some N95 masks, ship them over here to me, in you know a bag of a DHL bag of like a hundred masks, and then I'm giving them to a, a local hospital or clinic that that really desperately needs them. He was calling from he had reached out from Portland, Oregon, where you know obviously the, in the early days there was. Uh, a lot of need for the, for this equipment. Okay, so listeners who want to help get personal protective equipment in the hands of our frontline heroes by going to frontlineheroesusa.org, they can make a donation on the website that directly results in effectively, I don't want to say this too bluntly, but I, I want to anyway, bypassing FEMA and all the bullshit of the federal government and actually getting the stuff to the people who need it right now. That's what we've done, Eric. We've we've created an end-to-end distribution system where we are not only able to buy and source these masks where they are plentiful and where they are cheap, which is typically over in China. We're getting them in small quantities. We like to call it like an underground railroad of PPE. We get it over here to the States. We get it tested at a at a at a medical center to make sure we're getting quality merchandise. And then we are getting it directly into the hands of the individual doctors and nurses and EMTs who then distribute it to their teams. We can't get 10,000 or 100,000 masks to a hospital system. That's not what we're about. What we're about is getting 100 masks, 200 masks to a, a, a clinic in Indianapolis to a hospital in New Orleans. All around the country, we've been able to make these direct connections with these frontline heroes who are in actual urgent need of this equipment. To date, we've raised over $700,000. We have bought and distributed over 60,000 N95 equivalent masks to more than 600 individual clinics, hospitals, EMT departments, you name it, all across the country. And I got to tell you, Eric, we're just getting started. Ben, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs and business people in our audience. Uh, I, I hope that your actions will inspire some of them to think about what kind of charity they could create. What, what words of either motivation or advice would you have to someone who's considering doing something like this? Maybe they've figured out a different way that they'd like to help our healthcare heroes or someone else through this crisis. Well, the, the first recommendation I have is just do it. Just do it. 
right? If you're waiting for someone to organize you, if you're waiting for someone to give you permission, you know, that's, that's what we've been so ingrained and accustomed to that, that that's what that's what government and big corporations that's what they do to you they make you think you you can't act unless you are being led or organized by them and so my the the, the first thing and the most important thing i'd say is that's a crock you just get up and you just do it you just do now when it comes to actually raising money right and it is important i think to operate under the the 501c3 framework both to to take in donations and 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 have it you know enjoy that that tax advantaged properties of it which is really important but even more so it it really enforces and requires an element of oversight and documentation that that is so important when 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 money's involved now to establish a 501c3 from scratch is pretty hard. It takes a lot. It's not hard. It takes time. What we were able to do, and, and I think what, what many of your listeners will be able to do to, to really, I'll say, formalize this and, and to get it started as a, as, a, as a registered 501c3 is to find an existing 501c3 charity in, in your community, your organization, and partner with them to be a program or initiative of that existing 501c3 organization. So somebody who's already got the IRS letter designating them as a 501c3, piggyback on them, partner with them, and use their IRS letter. Correct. That's uh, that's exactly what we did. Uh, and I think it's a, a way to get these programs up and moving more quickly than the delays and the red tape from from a getting your own 501c3 designation. I think it's important to have that designation and to have the oversight and controls that that requires. But I also think that you can move more quickly if you find a, an organization in, in your community, an existing 501c3 that you can work with. Ben, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview. Before we let you go, your Epsilon Theory newsletter is one of the most popular and one of the most fascinating in the industry. Tell us briefly about that and where's the website and Twitter handle so people can find out more. Sure. Well, it's it's easy to find. It's EpsilonTheory.com and on Twitter, it's at Epsilon Theory. You know, it, it, it comes from the the old investment equation of alpha and beta, there's a third term on there called epsilon. And usually, you know, epsilon is E for error. But honestly, Eric, that's that's where all of the behavioral economics lives. That's where all of, I think, narrative lives. We call it the error term, but I think there's a lot of information there. So that's epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. I thought you were going to tell me the E is for extraordinary monetary policy and uh, <laughs> fiscal balance sheet expansion. It, fantastic reading, though, and, and great insights, so I highly recommend it to our listeners. We're going to leave it there. Patrick Ceresna and I will be back as Macro Voices continues right here at MacroVoices.com. Macro Voices is a listener-driven program. 
please email requests for specific future interview guests to requests at macrovoices.com. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com, and we'll answer them on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. We also welcome your suggestions for how we can improve the program. Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Eric, it was great to have uh, Ben back on the show. Uh, What did you take away from the interview? Well, I thought the most important thing that he said, which echoes something I've said before, is the one thing that you really almost have to get at least mostly right in investing is you've got to have a view on whether we've got a backdrop which is deflationary or inflationary, or maybe it's in between and, and, and you have a, a moderate view. But you've got to have some kind of view because the investments and the way you structure your portfolio is either going to work or not going to work based on that. And I think we're headed for a secular shift that I don't know. Ben doesn't know. None of our guests have been willing to really, you know, put a stake in the ground and lay out here's what's going to happen because I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. But all the ingredients are there over the next few years for deflation to eventually end and give way to inflation. And uh, I think that the politics are going to play a big role in this. We're seeing all of the different political parties seeming to favor more what effectively is monetization. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how each of our guests have different views on this. We got a few emails about Dr. Lacey Hunt making such a big deal saying, look, the Fed doesn't have the ability to spend money. All that they can do is to loan money and provide liquidity into the market. And that's all based on this idea, Patrick, that when the government engages in deficit spending, the Fed is not directly buying that debt. Instead, it's being sent and there's you know free market price discovery occurring because a private sector party is buying that debt from the government and that allows the interest rate to be set at market rates. And the Fed is not allowed to buy that debt directly from the government. Well, if that's the whole intention of the Federal Reserve Act, But in practice, the way it works is that debt has to get sold to a private sector banker who is going to turn it around two days later and sell it to the Fed at a markup. That's not, you know, private sector market price discovery. That's just a sham that allows the primary dealers to, to mark up what they're buying and sell it back to a guaranteed buyer of the Fed who's effectively monetizing. I, I don't really agree with Dr. Hunt and other people who say that the Fed can't spend money. They're, they're indirectly doing so by working around the intention of the Federal Reserve Act. And I think they're already doing that. Uh, to a large extent. Anyway, let's get to the post-game chart book, Patrick. You put together another terrific chart deck. Listeners, you'll find the download link in your Research Roundup email. Now, if you don't have a Research Roundup email, that means you haven't yet registered your free account at macrovoices.com. Shame on you. You can remedy that by just going to macrovoices.com and looking for the red button on the homepage that says looking for the downloads. Patrick, let's go ahead and dive in here on page two. This looks like a chart of the S&P, but you've got a bunch of other secondary studies around the S&P. What's going on here? 
Right. So what we had was the S&P 500. We've been drawing on the analog of what a bear market would look like and going through all sorts of storylines over the last month. But what uh, what I really wanted to touch on was what's a growing thing in the market is that everyone's focusing on the big behemoth stocks that have been running, like Amazon, Fresh New Highs, and all these other mega cap stocks that have been running. And it's been driving the NASDAQ. And when you look at the NASDAQ, which is the black line on there, we can see that it, it we almost approached the pre-bear market high. And really, the bigger question to ask is, how did the NASDAQ pull this off? And what's really amazing is, is that it's just a handful of stocks. So when you look at the five mega cap stocks, the largest market capitalized stocks in the uh, NASDAQ and the S&P 500, they just have a monstrous weighting into the indices. So in the S&P 500, those five stocks make up 20% of the weighting. So that means the other 495 stocks in that index make up the other 80%. And therefore, as go those stocks, goes the whole market. And what's interesting is that when you look at the indices that don't have the market cap weighting of those five stocks, it paints a much different picture. So what I have here is the Dow Jones, which is uh, price-weighted, then you have the uh, London FTSE in yellow. You have the emerging markets. You have the, um, the Eurostock 50, as well as the Russell, which is the small cap indice. And what you can identify here is that once you take out those five mega cap stocks, the indices look incredibly weak everywhere in the world. And this is what I continue to believe is giving us the evidence that this is still truly a bear market and a bear market rally. Just because you have enough market participants willing to crowd into a a few of these mega stocks and drive their prices higher is not really reflective of the underpinning conditions from a breadth perspective that of a very deteriorated equity market once you leave those five stocks. And so to me, it's still a bear market rally and it's still rolling over. We'll see certainly next week once we get past the option expiration gamma pins, whether or not uh, another round of selling may be coming into June. Moving on to page three, Patrick, looking at the euro versus the dollar. Boy, this chart's looking a little bearish. Uh, I guess you could call this either a descending triangle or a wedge, depending on how you draw around that that late March bottom there. Uh, What do you make of this? Well, really, you turn this chart upside down and you got the dollar index, right? And what's amazing is the dollar index still has such a huge weighting into the euro of 57% weighting. And so really, as goes the euro, goes the dollar index. And so what we can continuously see here over the last month and a half, every attempt the euro has had to rally and make it stick, it's lasted no more than a week. And almost immediately the selling comes back down and and brings it right to the bottom of the range. And it's just such weak price action. Now all you need is, uh, it's like the euro's at the edge of a cliff and all it needs is someone to give it a push. And if it loses its footing here, we could uh, be seeing a, a euro move down to 105 or 103, which would certainly be the underpinning catalyst that will drive the Dixie up towards that 104 target that you've often referenced. And so this is the must-watch chart in my mind, and it has so many global macro implications if it gives out. So this is probably the single big and most important chart to watch, in my opinion. What I really do wanted to highlight further is if we go to page four, 
when we look at the dollar index, it really feels like the dollar's been doing nothing. But really, once you leave the euro and you go and start looking at the rest of the currencies around the world, and particularly when you move into the emerging market currencies, you can see just how incredibly weak all those currencies have been relative to the dollar. Whether you go to Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, I have the Russian ruble here, you have uh, the South African rand and the uh, Turkish lira, all just so incredibly weak. And that just continues to support that there is a fundamental US dollar bull market underway. And it's being disguised by the fact that the euro has been pinned, which makes the dollar index look like it's far more range bound. But I actually think the US dollar is in full bull trend. And, and it's just a matter of time before the euro gives out and succumbs to that predominant trend. Patrick, let's move on to page five. One of my favorite charts, of course, is gold. And boy, look at that breakout we've seen just in the last couple of days. Oh, for sure. And and you were talking about it. And this is the big question, right? When everybody is so convinced gold is going higher, usually whenever you have that kind of a strong sentiment, usually it means that the trade is crowded and it backfills. And so that that storyline makes sense. But, but, you know, when you really look at the conditions around the world and the size of the gold market, is it possible that it just keeps, uh, you know, punching higher and, and making fresh new highs? I mean, we're right now, only a, a, a hundred or two hundred dollars away from those uh, 2011 highs. It's, it will be really interesting whether or not uh, gold makes the next push higher first before that much-awaited consolidation kicks in. Well, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Is maybe that's the next move? Is up to 1922? I think was the uh, the 2011. That's from memory, so don't don't hate me if I got it wrong, folks. Uh, we get back to the the 2011 high. And that's where we have a significant technical correction, maybe back down to 1500 or 1400 or, or something from there. Uh, the problems with this, you know, look, that you couldn't ask for better long-term fundamentals. You know that the politicians are going to debase fiat currency. You know they're going to keep on printing money to deal with the coronavirus crisis. And the next thing after the coronavirus crisis is going to be universal basic income and the various social programs that some parts of the, the political economy would like to see in place. There's got so many reasons to be bullish. But the problem is, everybody knows that. And what propels a bull market higher is when something causes people to make new purchases and a lot of them. What could be the policy impetus, Patrick, that causes everybody to say, okay, th this situation, it, it's more bullish than we thought. We got to double down on our gold bets right here at this price. I mean, look at what the Fed has already done, Patrick. Literally, unlimited monetary policy accommodation to the tune of half a trillion dollars a week, or at least it feels that way. And, you know, for a while, we were going a couple trillion dollars a week in new fiscal spending bills that Congress is talking about pushing through. You know that they're going to debase the value of paper money, and it's got to be good for gold. But how do you top all of that? How do you come up with the next news report that makes the case even more compelling? It's already priced in, I think. That's what got us up here. So what happens, Patrick, if the Fed actually were to show some restraint 
and maybe moderate the, the amount of, of policy accommodation? And what if we stop having $2 trillion spending announcements from the government every week or two? Uh, then maybe we get you know the setup. So we've come an awfully long ways. We're overdue for a technical correction. I still feel like it has to come at some point, but boy, this chart still looks awfully strong. This descending triangle, if it had resolved to the downside, was the setup for maybe a really significant correction, and it looks like it's not happening. We're resolving to the upside instead. Well, you know, the one thing I'll add to that, though, is, I mean, you took a very uh, American approach to that, which is like looking at what the Fed itself is doing. And the U.S. dollar, obviously, is the world reserve currency. But the whole world is in an incredibly deep recession. And there's going to be a lot of currency debasement in in almost every country in the world. And so, what, you know, even if there might be a catalyst that may not have that gold demand from the U.S., you have to still think that, that um, the, the safe haven element of gold will be incredibly popular, especially in a lot of those other cross currencies. Anyway, let's move on to uh, page six, where I just wanted to touch on uranium. We don't uh, talk uranium too often. And rightfully so, uranium has been stuck in a bear market for many, many years. And what is interesting is one of the reasons behind that has been because there was an oversupply and they needed to work that through that oversupply uranium that has caused it to trade uh, below its actual production cost. And so what, what this COVID has done, though, is, is that it actually shut down a number of mines. And now the catalyst for that supply to be worked off is actually there. And so we saw a pretty bullish breakout in uranium. And it'll be really interesting to see whether the bulls can not only hold this or whether this actually is the beginning of a new bull market in uranium. So it's uh, certainly something we're watching. And folks, don't forget, Patrick does webinars with charts like this almost every single day. You can get a free trial. The information is on page seven to sign up for Patrick's trading advisory service. Now, Eric, before we wrap up the show, though, uh, why don't you give us a quick update on what's going on with the COVID-19? You know, I don't have that much new to add this week as I continue to learn and read more about this. Uh, there's no, you know, huge earth-shaking headline or anything, but I, I just see more and more evidence that all piles up to me to say this is going to take longer than markets are discounting. Uh, I don't mean the economy is going to stay shut down, but the expectations so many people have about a V-shaped recovery and we're back to normal, like pre-virus normal, you know, three or four months from now. I just don't see it happening. There's no good reason to assume that there's going to be a vaccine for this. And there's so many different variations and mutations of the virus already that if we did have a vaccine, it might not cover all the different versions of it. It could take many years before we get completely back to normal. And of course, we're, we're going to restart the economy. We're, we're going to get as close to normal as we can. But it remains to be seen how much of a drag this creates. And I, I really love to, to get Stan Druckenmiller on the program to go into more detail on what causes him to say that maybe this central bank-enabled credit bubble is finally going to pop and this would be the catalyst to do it. That would really change everything and we could be looking at an outright depression. So uh, I don't think it's nearly as simple as V-shaped recovery. And folks, we're going to leave it there for today's show. This episode was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. Remember to get the ultimate guide to the best investing books ever written at TopTradersUnplugged.com forward slash macro guide. For information on sponsoring Macro Voices, please visit MacroVoices.com forward slash sponsor info.
Listeners, be sure to register a free account at MacroVoices.com. The benefit to you is you'll receive our Research Roundup email, which provides you with all of the best free content that we could find on the Internet each week, including downloads associated with our guest appearances, as well as, of course, our post-game chart books. Patrick, tell them what they missed in this week's Research Roundup. Well, this week you're going to find the transcript for today's interview, as well as a link to the charts we just discussed in the post game. There's also a, a link of the David Tepper interview where he discusses that this is the second most overvalued stock market he has ever seen, as well as a link to an ECB article on negative interest rates and the transmission of monetary policy. So you'll find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. So that does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners, and we're always looking for suggestions on how we can make the program even better. Now, for those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners, send us an email at researchroundup at macrovoices.com or tag it with the MVRR hashtag on Twitter and we'll include it in our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account at macrovoices for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric S. Townsend and myself at Patrick Ceresna. On behalf of Eric Townsend and myself, thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com. <laughs>